0: We're moving through the book of Genesis, and there, there's, it, one of the difficult things is to figure out how many places to stop and where to kind of keep moving, because we could still be in Genesis 1 and 2 if we wanted to. Uh, there's just so much there um, to unpack, but the passage we're going to look at today Got me to thinking of how some of us may have grown up. Uh, Some of us grew up with parents that were hard to please. Uh, Some of us maybe were lucky enough to have parents that were always gushing with praise, but others of us it was hard to pry a compliment from your mom or from your dad. Um, And so as a result, we find ourselves trying to perform to get that compliment trying to do enough or say the right thing or go to the right school or marry the right kind of person, have the right kids, have the right career, produce the right results, to try to get that affirmation, to know to know that they love you. And I think a lot of us hoist that onto our relationship with God. That God is a hard-to-please dad. That God is real stingy with his compliments. In fact, all he wants is compliments for himself, and he doesn't give any to you. He doesn't approve. He just talks about your sin. He just wants to judge you and have wrath on you for what you've done in the past. And while that's true, we don't have that other angle that the Scripture gives us about his love and his compassion and his long-suffering and his mercy and his grace because it wasn't demonstrated to us in our home it's that much harder to wrap our minds around that. And so our spiritual lives are, are very performance-driven sometimes. We, we want to do so that God can be pleased, so that he can go, okay, fine, I'll, I'll smile at that. Um, and maybe that doesn't represent all of you in here, but I think a lot of us have maybe even hidden struggles, right, that we don't really talk about, maybe even with our spouses, And if we really thought deeply enough, we would come to that point where we recognize that, yeah, we we kind of view God as that hard-to-please God. Uh, It's difficult to sort of uh, recover from past mistakes. No matter how much good you do, no matter how many church services you go to, you have those sins looming over you like a dark shadow that you can't escape. You can't undo them. You can't pretend like they didn't. And you know that they displeased the Lord. And they, they're haunting. This is why I think so many religions, in fact, every religion besides Christianity, is works-based. Every religion besides Christianity, the way that you get to God, the way that you get to, um, even if you don't want to use God language, the way you get to experience fulfillment, the way you arrive at nirvana, the way you build up enough karma, whatever you want to call it, that that. Spiritual elevation can only be experienced by you putting in the work, by you doing enough to be approved by that God, that person, that, that invisible power, right? That, that to, for you to reach enlightenment, whatever it is. There's work that needs to be put in for that approval. But it's not just other religions. It infects Christianity. Christianity struggles with the same problem. We know we were saved by grace. We say it. We sing Amazing Grace, but there's always this temptation, this bent, this proclivity that we have to slide back into a works-based performance to sort of pry that affirmation from God to get that favor from Him. You guys remember that story of the prodigal son? It should be the prodigal brothers. Because the story is not about one guy. The story is about two guys. In fact, technically, the story is about one man who had two sons. Two sons represent two sides of this problem about working for salvation, working for love, working for earning God's favor. Everybody remembers the younger son. He left the house and he wanted to go do his own thing. He's the one that went and lived it up. He, he just did everything he wanted to do. So his sin track record went, went through the roof. And then he's broke, he's poor, nobody loved him, nobody cared for him. All the women he was with, nowhere to be found. All the guys he was drinking with, nowhere to be found. All he did was owe money. He finds himself in the, in the mud, wishing that he could at least have what the pigs were eating. And then the light bulb comes on. I need to go back and grovel before that. I need to beg him to let me back in. He prepares a speech, if you remember. He prepares a speech, something like, I've sinned, I've messed up, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you. Hire me as a servant and let me work this off, basically. Let me come back and work for your approval. That was his speech. He comes back home and starts his speech, but before he could get to that part about let me come in and work, the dad says throw a robe on him, throw sandals on him, clean him up, give him a ring, because my son is home. Not a servant, not a worker my son. Sonship is not something you earn. Sonship is something you're born with. You have it. And then the page turns and you have the older brother, right? In fact, the overarching point of the story is the older brother because Jesus is talking to Pharisees who didn't like that Jesus was hanging out with sinners, ministering to sinners. And the point that he wants to get across to them is you guys are not the younger son. They're the younger son. You guys are the older son. And the older son had a problem. He didn't like that the younger son was being celebrated, right? He didn't like that the dad was throwing a party to celebrate the younger son. Why? Because the younger son didn't earn it. He did everything not to earn it. So why is the older son upset? The older son is upset. He's like, you should be throwing me parties because I've earned it. I'm the one that earns it. I should have your favor. There should be parties for me all the time. I never went away. I never went with women. I never gambled. I never lost money. I didn't ask you for your inheritance. I haven't disrespected you. I've been working here. In fact, when he left, I picked up the slack and did the work of two men. I did this. I did that. I did this. I did that. What does the dad say? What are you talking about? Everything I have is yours. It's not based on how much you do or don't do. Everything I have is just automatically yours because of a relationship. But the older brother doesn't join the party. He stays outside. And Jesus never gives what the older brother responded, the way he responded. You know why? Because I think Jesus flipped it back to the Pharisees and said, how do you respond? You're the older brother. You finish the story. Sadly, the way those guys finished the story, for most of them, there were some of the Pharisees that did change. But for most of them, they couldn't break out of that works-based mentality that I earn favor with God. Therefore, other people that don't earn it shouldn't get grace. But I get it. I get it because I've earned it. Meaning they don't understand grace. You don't have to go to the New Testament for that story. It's in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you have both of those brothers in a pair of twins that are born uh, to Isaac and Rebekah. And we're going to find ourselves in Genesis 25. If you turn to Genesis 25... You're going to get both characters. The guy that kind of doesn't really think about what he has, doesn't really, he just takes his father's favor for granted. And then another guy who scratches and claws and plans and schemes to try to get that favor. Both of them are wrong. Both of them are not seeing God's blessing the right way. So let's look at it in Genesis 25. Let's skip our eyes down to uh, verse 24. Rebecca was barren, just like Sarah was, and uh, she could not have any children for 20 years, for two decades, could not have any children. She prayed. God answered the prayer, opened her womb, and not just one baby, but two babies, kicking around in there. Um, And it says, when her days... To give birth were completed. Behold, there were twins in her womb. Verse 24. Then verse 25. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. After his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. The The word Jacob sounds like heel grabber. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now sometimes, you know, scholars or or pastors try to read that, and they, they basically say Esau was a manly man, and Jacob was kind of like an effeminate kind of girly girl. That's not what it says. That's not what it says. It just says one was a hunter, and he was good at it, and dad loved him some meat. And the other one was a quiet man. It could also be interpreted a solid man. He was self-contained, demonstrated composure. When you read this story, Esau's kind of flying off at the handle, kind of not not a good thinker. Jacob's a careful thinker. He wasn't at home knitting blankets, but he was a shepherd. He took care of animals. That's what Abraham did. So it's not about manliness, okay? But it is about favoritism, because Rebecca favored... uh, Jacob while Esau was favored by the dad But both of them can't get the birthright the inheritance Both of them can't get it and both of them can't get the blessing that was passed from Abraham to Isaac You remember they sent Ishmael away So that there's no competition for the blessing that goes to Isaac In fact, Abraham had more kids with other women and they had to be sent away So that there's no competition for the blessing that will only go to Isaac now Isaac has twins and the blessing can't go to both of them. One of them comes out first, but the other one grabbing at the heel, which would be symbolic for how things play out. Jacob wanting that blessing that naturally should be going to Esau because Esau came out first. So as you read the story, um, we're not going to move through it verse by verse, but we'll kind of give a, a recap. First, there's the birthright, the inheritance. And, uh, Jacob finds an opportunity to connive, uh, to uh, scheme and get it, pry it out of Esau's hands. Esau comes back from the field and he's starving, right? He's hungry and uh, he hunts the stuff. He doesn't know how to cook the stuff. Jacob knows how to make the best beef stew in the area. And so Esau comes home and he's like, I'm starving. I'm so hungry. I'm going to die. You know, all of us have reached that point. We're not really starving, are we? All right. Um, we, we have plenty of food. When we say we're starving, we're exaggerating. All right? So we'll see. I'm famished. I'm about to die. And he says, well, if you need it that badly, I'll give it to you. I'll give you this red stew that you love. You have to sell me your birthright. I'll give you the soup. You give me your birthright. Fair exchange? No. Dumb. You ever buy something on impulse and later you're like, wow, that was stupid. I believe the commercial. It was all hype, right? Multiply that. This is his birthright. All that his dad owns, all that the main inheritance is to go to him. He becomes the new patriarch, and he's going to sell it for a bowl of red stew. I almost feel bad because if it's like my mom's beef stew, I almost can get there where I'm like, I, I almost get it. But man, that is dumb. And Jacob does it. Esau said, what is my birthright to me? And the text tells, me, tells us Esau thus despised his birthright. He didn't care about it. He didn't care. Just took it for granted. That's just something that's his. Eh, he's the eldest. Eh, he always grew up knowing that he came out first. Eh, this chump was trying to grab my head he came out first. And he just kind of took it for granted, despised it, didn't care about it. Jacob snatched it for himself. The next episode, when you move down a couple of chapters, is the blessing. Now, remember that when the torch was passed from Abraham to Isaac, the blessing was also passed from Abraham to Isaac, and there wasn't a big ceremony that the text tells us about, but it tells us that God was over that, and God blessed Isaac. But this is interesting, because Jacob is kind of having to finagle it, kind of Pull the strings to make this work. He's got the birthright, but he needs that blessing from his dad. When his dad pronounces that blessing to his son, that's when the torch is officially passed. How's he going to get that from his dad? His dad's not going to care that he sold a bowl of soup for a birthright. He's going to bless Esau. And you can't convince the dad that Esau's not worth it because Esau's his favorite. But Rebecca, the mom, comes up with a plan. The dad, Isaac, he's old, he can't see, he's blind, he, he could probably see a little bit, he sees images and blurry movements, but he can't see crisply, and he tells his son, hey Esau, it's time to give you the blessing, it's time to pass the torch, uh, let's do this right over some steak, what do you think? Yeah, we'll go kill something, bring it back, and let's have a meal, and then we'll do this right. Okay, so Esau takes off, Rebecca overheard the conversation, she goes and gets Jacob, hey, Go in there and pretend like you're Esau. He can't see. And tell him, okay, time for the blessing. Come in with this stew. He'll be so distracted by how good it tastes. He's just like his son. All right. He'll be so distracted by how awesome this, this lentil stew is going to taste that he's, he'll bless you and he won't be able to see. The son says, but I'm not, if he, if he touches me, I won't feel like Esau. Esau's all hairy, right? Esau smells like the field. He kind of stinks. Uh, I don't smell like that. She goes, don't worry about it. I'll hook you up. Just go make the stew. He goes and makes the stew, and she comes out with an Esau outfit, okay? Maybe you could be this for Halloween. I don't know. Maybe you don't celebrate Halloween, but redeem it by being Esau. I don't know. She takes goat skin and puts it on his arms. She takes some of Esau's clothes and puts it on him so he smells like Esau. The clothing is Esau's clothing, and the arms feel like the hairy arms that Esau had. And sure enough, Jacob comes in, and Isaac says, oh, who's there? Oh, this is <clears throat> Esau. You know, it's, it's kind of comical when you're reading the story. And he says, that doesn't sound like Esau. Come here. He touches him. He feels his arms. He does, it a, couple, he does a couple tests. He's, he grabs him, and he smells him. Man, it smells like Esau. Okay. Pronounces the blessing on Isaac, that Isaac would be the new patriarch. Or on uh, Jacob. Isaac pronounces the, new, the blessing, passing the torch to Jacob, that Jacob would be the new patriarch. Jacob is the man now. Jacob is the one carrying the blessing. He leaves. Esau comes in with his bull. Okay, Dad, time for me. Who's that? And he starts weeping, crying out loud. Your brother came in and deceived me. He has the blessing. Well, don't you have leftover blessing for me? It sounds like kind of a, a baby. No, there's no leftover blessing. I gave him everything. He's got the land. He's got the people. He's got the the torch, the promise of blessing. It's through him and his family now. So Esau's fuming. Esau's angry. Jacob has to run away. It becomes a mess. Now, all this time, Jacob is sort of repeating a pattern that he's getting from his parents. Because even when God says, this is how the blessing is going to work, Abraham, Isaac, jacob they would they would do things to sort of mess things up why because they're trying to secure it for themselves they're trying to hold on to it for themselves and make sure that the blessing is secure you remember when abraham went into a strange land and he thought oh my goodness they're gonna they're gonna kill me because they want they going not want my wife and if they kill me the blessing's not going to happen so let me protect the blessing by lying and saying she's my sister and really that almost messed things up god stepped in and is like what are you doing right and then he did it again. He did that twice, the same mistake. When you read in, I believe, chapter 26, Isaac goes through, goes through a similar episode. There's a famine in the land, so they have to go somewhere else. And he's afraid that the king of that land is going to find Rebecca beautiful. And so he tells Rebecca a lie. The same thing. What's he trying to do? Protect the blessing, even though God says the blessing's intact. I got it. Don't worry about it. I got this. It's like, mm, I don't really trust that God's got this, so I'm going to do it. Okay. Uh, taking things into your own hands because you don't trust that God's got it. And that's what's happening here in Jacob's life. Jacob is conniving, he's stealing, he's scheming, he's lying to his dad. He's trying to make things happen so that he can protect the blessing for himself. God lets it happen, and God does give Jacob the blessing. Here's the catch. God does not let Jacob have the blessing because of all the work that Jacob did to get the blessing. The only reason why God gave Jacob the blessing was because God said so before they were born. That's the only reason why. It had nothing to do with Jacob's craftiness. It had nothing to do with Jacob's work ethic. It had nothing to do with the fact that Jacob was thirsty for it and Esau kind of despised it. It has nothing to do with which one wanted it more. It has nothing to do with which one obeyed God more. It has zero to do with which one pleased God more. The reason why Jacob got the blessing was because God chose Jacob, and it has zero to do with the effort that Jacob put into it. In fact, if anything, all that Jacob did was show how undeserving he was of the blessing by lying, scheming, embarrassing his dad, making his brother hate him, following mom's terrible suggestions in that instance. All he really did was show that he's not worthy of it either. Now, Esau's not a stand-up guy. You're not supposed to read the story and go, man, I can't believe Esau didn't get it. What a great guy. No, he's foolish. But so is Jacob. At least Jacob knows what he wants, but he goes about it the wrong way. If you look at a little piece that we missed or skipped intentionally, we're going to look back at it. Skip your eyes up, back up to 19. Verse 19. It says, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah. Young people, take your time. 40 years old, he got Rebekah, the woman of his dreams, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramaean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban. He's going to come into the picture again. To be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But it gets complicated the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? Now, ladies, those of you who've had babies and, and those of you guys who've been able to touch the womb and you feel them kicking, that's kind of cute. Sometimes it tickles, sometimes it's annoying, right? This is next level. The, the Hebrew word behind struggle in her womb is crush or oppress. She's desperate. She's not like, oh, that's cute. Why is this happening to me? She's like despairing of her life. Why would you grant the request and give me two babies that are killing me and killing each other? Like I'm going to die in here. Now, they didn't have ultrasound. They weren't like, well, one of them's choking the other with the umbilical cord. Let's just go in there with some forceps. They don't know what's going on. All they f- she just feels this, this crushing, oppressing struggle, like the two kids are trying to kill each other inside her womb, and it's killing her. She says, why is this happening to me? She went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, here's what he said. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. Now you would think that the way this little uh, oracle finishes would be that the one that's older will have rights over the other one. The one that's bigger, the one that's stronger, the one that comes out first, okay? Not just physically stronger, but by culture and tradition, being the first one out, he's now the firstborn, of course, the younger will have to serve the older. But God reverses it and says, the older shall serve the younger. God lets Esau come out first and take that place as older son, but now God is saying, but I'm going to take the younger son and put him on top and give him the blessing. Now, Rebecca kept that, and she held on to that. That might be one of the reasons why Jacob was her favorite, because she knew. She knew Jacob was the one. doesn't mean she hated Esau or didn't like Esau, but she knew Jacob was going to be the one to carry this blessing forward into the future. And she held that, but she doubted it. She doubted, especially in that moment when Isaac was about to pass the blessing to to Esau, and she panicked. Wait a minute, if, if Isaac passes the blessing to Esau, then this doesn't come true. But rather than letting it be in God's hands and letting God take care of it, she connived and she had Jacob lie and deceive and do things that were foolish because they weren't trusting that this is not based on what Jacob can do. This is based solely on what God chooses, period. Jacob doesn't have to earn it. Jacob doesn't have to deserve it. Jacob doesn't have to perform for it. In fact, all the things that he does is just going to look like a bumbling idiot. He's going to prove himself unworthy, and he's still going to give it to him. Why? Because God said so from before they were born. God chose it, and that's why it's there. It has nothing to do with Jacob's effort or his work ethic. You know, when Paul was writing to the Romans, he knew his audience really well, and there were Jews in that audience, right? Descendants of Israel, descendants of Jacob. And they thought, well, if we're God's chosen people, then almost kind of doesn't really matter what we do. I mean, they obviously had a theology that you have, to, you have to stay in it, but you're born in it and you have it. And those who aren't born into it, hey, they don't have it. Unless you want to come over and become a Jew, you can become a Jew and then you can have it. But you have to ha- be a Jew to have it. And then Paul's writing the letter of Romans. He's trying to explain to them, you don't have to be a Jew to have this it. for Gentiles too. And they're going, well, how can you be a Gentile and not have it? They don't have the blessing. And then he proves to them from the story we just read that just because you're an Israelite doesn't mean you get the blessing because otherwise Esau would have had it. Esau was born from the same parents, raised in the same culture, raised in the same household, and he despised it. He didn't want it, but Jacob got it. I want you to look at that in Romans chapter 9. I want you to turn there. We're not going to put this one on the screen. We're going to actually move to Romans chapter 9. And this is a really thick chapter. We're just going to look at one paragraph, and this gets a little bit, uh, this gets deep. But I think it's going to be helpful for us to help to help us understand the impact. Sometimes we hear the Jacob and Esau story in a Sunday school, and we remember the flannel graphs, and really what we remember is Esau was a hairy kind of, you know, sort of a detestable character, and and Jacob was a conniver. But well, at least he got the blessing. What's the point of that? What's the point of that story? We're going to see that a little bit more when, and Paul uses it in Romans chapter 9 to prove to the Romans and to the Jews that were reading this letter that it had nothing to do with just being born into it. You can be born into it and not have it, or you cannot be born into it and still have it. But It has nothing to do with your ethnicity. It has nothing to do with Jewishness. What does it have to do with? It has to do with God's choice. That's what it has to do with. If God chooses to open that opportunity for other people, then he chooses them. It's based on his choice. It's not based on your ethnicity. It's not based on how religious you are. It's not based on how well-groomed you were when you were a kid. You know, I don't mean physically, but grooming a child up in religious rites and habits. Look what he says. They were thinking, well, if, if, if all the Jews aren't going to be saved, then God must have failed. Because God chose the Jews, and some of them aren't going to be saved, you're saying. So God must have failed. He goes, no, he didn't fail. He didn't fail. Listen to what he says in verse 9, verse 6. It is not as though the word of God failed. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. You follow? Just because you're an Israelite doesn't mean you're a Christian. Doesn't mean you're in Christ. Doesn't mean you grab that blessing, that ultimate promise that came in Christ, just because you were born to God's revelatory people. He says, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Now he's going to bring in Sarah. For this is what the promise said. About this next time, next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, also when Rebekah, now this is the story we just read. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, in other words, they hadn't done anything yet and had done nothing either good or bad you see what he's emphasizing? It has nothing to do with how good Jacob was or how bad Jacob was. It has nothing to do with how good Esau was or how bad Esau was. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, he says it again, but because of him who calls. And there you have this this. What other word to use? This juxtaposition, when you put two things next to each other for compare and contrast, right? This juxtaposition of work, earning, and God's call. And they're not the same because his call is not based on what you can earn. It's not based on how good you are or how bad you are. I I feel like I can't say that enough times because when you're sitting at your bedside with your kid and they're asking you how to please God, you better not give them some stuff about naughty and nice. When somebody at a bus stop asks you, how do I get to God? Or asks you, I want to get to heaven, how do I get there? And you start pulling about a list of do's and don'ts, you don't get it. We can't repeat the gospel enough. The gospel is not something you learn in you know, third grade and then you pass that and now we're just going to do theology. It's always the gospel. Once you leave the gospel behind, you left Christ behind. This is the nitty-gritty right here. God is, uh, Paul is trying to explain to the Romans, this has nothing to do with Jewishness. This has nothing to do with goodness or badness or works. This has to do with God's election, God's choice. And He doesn't choose you based on where you were born. He doesn't choose you based on how much you've done for Him. It's about faith. He says, it's in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Verse 11, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. He's quoting Malachi, and he doesn't mean he literally hated Esau, but you remember when Jesus said, if, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to f- prove that you love me, you've got to hate your wife, hate your mother, hate your kids. Well, why would Jesus teach to hate people? He just means you love me with such a, a white-hot passion that, in contrast, it looks like you don't love other people at all. And if the two ever ever came in conflict and you had to choose between a person and Jesus, you're choosing me because you love me, and com- in comparison, you hate everything else. This is just saying God chose Jacob and didn't choose Esau. Now the, the immediate question, and you guys can continue reading on your own time I mean, they're going to ask they ask that in the next verse. That's not fair. That's not fair. Why, you chose Jacob? How come he didn't choose Esau? And Paul gives a real harsh answer. Man, I mean, it's just, he just kicks you in the face. You know, who are you to tell him what to choose? Ouch. Now, listen, we grew up in America. This is America. Right. And we have rights. Women have rights. Kids have rights. You can't spank your kids. Don't even look at them bad in in public because they catch that on security camera and you're done right? They'll snatch your kids away. Okay, we haven't gotten there yet. I feel like it's getting close. This is about rights, individuality. You can do anything you want. You can do anything you put your mind to. That's why we like capitalism, right? I mean, there's, there's just all this. And I'm not knocking any of that. I'm just saying we come to scripture and we come with rights. We come with what I deserve. We come with I, what I should get. And so, when they ask the question, well, how come someone else is chosen and this person's not chosen? Everyone should get equal opportunity. Here's the point if everyone got equal opportunity, we'd all be dead. God doesn't have to choose anybody. I mean, isn't that the first, when you're rounding first base of the gospel before you get home, first base is I'm a sinner, I deserve to die. That's first base. We like to skip that one and get to second base and third base and go, God, you know, God sent Jesus to die for you. And then we're confused when people go, I don't care. How can they not care? That's so amazing that Jesus died. Because first base, they don't get that they deserve to die and someone took it for them. You're just saying, hey, somebody died for you. Why? That was dumb. In fact, they'll tell you, God is an angry, mean God that he would send his son and kill his son just to sort of satisfy his own anger just so I could be with him. They're missing first base. They don't deserve it. Now, if Jacob doesn't deserve it and Esau doesn't deserve it and God chooses Jacob, Esau can't go, hey! But Jacob should go, wow, I shouldn't be here either. Right? Now, when we're reading the story, about Jacob and Esau, and we see why Paul grabs that episode and uses it in Romans to prove to people that election is not based on what we can do. God's choice, bringing you into a relationship with him, is not based on your performance, good or bad. It's based on his choice. Then that does something miraculous for us because we realize that I don't have to earn it. That is a huge weight to come off of your shoulders. It, 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 it's, it's all of that. Can I please my dad? Can I please my mom? All that stuff, all that pressure, it doesn't belong there between you and God. Because you can't earn it. You can't get it. You can't attain it. Because God is a show off. That sounds bad, right? Because if I'm a show off, I'm a jerk why if i were show off and i just came up here and just talked about accomplishments and how how many compliments were paid to me this day or this week and how great i am and i just stood up here just kind of going off on how great i am this church would just shrink and shrink and shrink it'd be it'd be dead fast i would hope why because i'm not worthy of that attention But God is always worthy of that attention. Therefore, when He's a show-off, it's good that He's a show-off. He should show off His glory. He should show off His power. He should show off His might. And that's why He does what He does. He says that in Romans. Verse 22, God desires to show his, His wrath, His power, His patience. These are the kind of things that God wants to demonstrate to the world. That's why God makes the choices that He makes to show off his power, to show off his glory, to show off his grace, that even while we were still sinners, he still did something to bring us in. That is amazing. I find it uh, fitting that there's all these stories of barrenness when we read the Old Testament. I mean, Sarah couldn't have kids. Rebecca couldn't have kids. What is going on? You know, Isaac probably thought that was behind him. I remember the stories about how my mom just couldn't have a baby, and finally she had me, right? But now I found Rebecca, and we're going to have children, and it's year one, and it's year two, and it's year three, and it's year four. They're not ignoring each other. They're trying. Twenty years before finally God intervened when Rebecca prayed. What is God doing there? Why is he repeating that pattern of barrenness? Because he's trying to communicate. There's a, well, there's a womb that can't give life. There's a womb that's dead. And no matter how you try, no matter what you try to do, you can't produce life. It's dead until I step in. I give life. I give life where there's death. I bring birth where there's barrenness. Because I'm the giver of life. You can't do it, I do it. So trust me. Guys, if you're in here this morning, it's one thing to wrestle with the, the hard things of theology. Like what about people out there that aren't chosen? What about people out there that, aren't, that haven't, been, they haven't given their lives to, to God yet? Is it because he didn't choose them? Well, that's, a, that's a big theological hurdle. We don't have time to unpack that today. But what I want to do is pay attention to the other side of the conversation and the fact that if you realize that you're in here, you've given your life to Christ, you have that faith. That's been given to you. That's been served up to you. You didn't earn it. You didn't grab it. You didn't take it. It was given to you. What does that mean? That means you don't have to earn it. That means you don't have to perform. You can come in here and sing because you love it, but you don't have to come in here and sing because you're trying to do a checklist. What a pressure and a weight that all the religions of the world hoist upon their followers that you have to do so much and then none of them ever really know if they're truly going to heaven or not because did I do enough? I'm not sure. Am I arrogant in thinking that I did enough? Well, then that arrogance might knock me down another peg and now I have to earn it back up again, right? I mean, there are circles of Christianity that have come up with things like purgatory, just like a safe zone, because we didn't quite earn it, so you've got to burn off the rest of it here. That works. But the Bible says that God chooses based on His purposes. That's why the Bible uses the picture of adoption. Right? Because when a child is adopted, that child was chosen. That, that child, I want that child. That we're going to bring that child into our family. Something more fitting with that picture than even a natural birth. Because that adopted child had no right. That adopted child didn't choose the house, didn't choose the parents, didn't choose to come in here. But that, those parents went out of their way to choose that child. And we are adopted in Christ. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. He didn't have to do it. God wasn't obligated to graft you in, but he did it. He did it to show off his grace. He did it to show off the fact that he's a God of love and of mercy. And rather than standing over you waiting for you to do good enough, he just invites you in. The father didn't ask the son to, oh, clean yourself up and then we'll see if you can come in. i will throw the robe on him. Because sonship is not based on works. Sonship is based on adoption. And if you're in, that's a beautiful thing to hold on to. If somebody asks you, how do you know you're getting to heaven? Be clear. I don't deserve it. I didn't, I didn't offer God what I was supposed to offer, but someone did on my behalf. And because he did that, the doors open to me. And I'm sure of it. I have assurance of eternal life. It's secure because it's not based on what I chose. It's based on what God chose. Guys, that is an amazing truth. Hard to grasp, but don't, don't dismiss it. Let it hit you because that's an anchor. That's an anchor when those past memories haunt you and those voices in your head say you're not good enough to stand up here in worship. You're not good enough to go to CFC. You're not good enough to sit next to those other saints. You're right. None of us are but we're given God's grace because Christ was good enough and he'll be good enough for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we, we, never, we never tire of your grace, your mercy, your love. God, what an amazing truth to try to, try to grasp that. Um, Lord, before we could do anything about it, before we can try to earn it, before we can try to perform and do enough to please You. Lord, You've already accomplished what we need on the cross through Your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's Jesus that we worship. It's Jesus that we lift up on high. It's Jesus that we will be casting our crowns before into eternity. It's the Lamb that took that, that broken body for us, that spilled that blood for us, that will be Uh, expressing our eternal praise and gratitude for, Lord, forever. Uh, Now we want to enter into a song that just expresses a little tiny slice of that, an expression of our thanks, an expression of our praise, an expression of who you are. And, and Fathers, we leave here today. Help us to take the images of the communion that we had, take them with us to remember that's why you are pleased. That's why we don't have to perform to try to earn something out of you. It's because you are gracious to a people who are adopted through Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for being our, our dad, for bringing us into your family, and to uniting us together in Christ. We're grateful to you for it. And it's in his name we pray it. Amen. Amen.